Has your church developed a robust and extensive set of lay care ministries that can fully connect with and meet the needs of congregants in their times of celebration, need, or crisis? Or is your church experiencing special moments of spirit-led empowerment, unleashing extraordinary levels of lay ministries that can increase member retention and firmly close the back door so the visitors can't get out? Well, if not... Rejoice and be glad. Maybe your church can salvage a biblical model of ministry. We're going to talk about this strange but popular idea of every person in the church being a minister tonight on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. We are on many email lists as ministers. We get a steady stream of good things and a steady stream of, of garbage. And one thing stood out to us that we're raising tonight. This came from ConnectionPower.com. And it was a model, an invitation for uh, our churches to embrace the model of every member being a minister. Well, let me see if I can describe that a little bit for you tonight. The article is entitled, Every Member a Minister. And I'm quoting from the article now. It says, this article would argue for a total empowerment and unleashing of the laity into every area of church ministry, including pastoral care. Now, it goes on to say this. It should be noted that such an empowerment in no way impinges on the value and the validity of the New Testament office of pastor or of pastoral authority. I don't even know how that's even a rational statement, and I don't think it is. It's, the guy's basically saying, you know, we're going to find a way to phase out ministers, and then we're going to try to give some lip service to God where he says that he actually has given ministers to the church as a gift to help the church. Okay, so they throw a bone to the pastors here, say, hey, we're going to take a little load off of your already extensive labors, but hey... Don't be threatened by us because we're not going to get rid of your office. Well, it's one of the great misunderstandings, too. I mean, the logic behind it, he doesn't even fully explain it, but it's a misunderstanding of a Reformation principle of the priesthood of all believers. And so what they've done is that they've taken this concept, priesthood of all believers, and now made it into the ministry of all believers and made all min believers ministers. Now, I'll tell you why this stood out to us. It stood out to us not just because this particular program or application of this principle was particularly bad, though it is, stood out to us because this is what a lot of churches are talking about today, even some churches that might go by the name Reformed or Presbyterian. Their main goal in life is to mobilize or get everybody active in the various aspects of the so-called ministry of the church. And we want to challenge that idea tonight. Yeah, I think what we have to deal with is saying, all right, what is the church? What did God actually give to us? And this is something that is completely missed, where you have our people with a basically modern democratized mindset saying that, all right, well, we have a right to speak about what happens in government. We should have a right to speak about what happens in the church. We should have a right actually to rule the church and run the church and teach in the church. The problem is that they're not understanding that there is a reason for office that God has given, that it actually is in his wisdom and in his love he's given it. And we're just gutting that with these new ideas here. Well, you're on to something in the idea here that they're trying to eliminate office. Uh, what they say they're going to do is give everybody an office. But what they don't want is they don't want any kind of a hierarchy. They don't want any kind of rulers in the church. 
They want to completely ignore the rich and clear teaching of Scripture that Christ is actually, as the great lawgiver, head, and king of the church, has actually given it a constitution. He's given it officers. And that's outlined, for instance, for us in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that Christ, uh, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. You can't get around that idea that Christ has given the church some offices. Well, the great thing is that that's actually the passage that's often used by these people to show that there isn't real office left. In fact, the only purpose of the officers is to make sure that everybody else does the work. So they completely misinterpret Ephesians 4.12, which we'll look at shortly. They misinterpret basically the whole theory that is being presented by the apostle. Now, we've addressed this before on the show. We've talked about church officers and their duties and how it's important for them uh, to fulfill those tasks and not to blur the line between the officers of the church and the members of the congregation. We also want to point out in this discussion that by saying that it's not right to give lay people in the church the job of the church officers, that doesn't mean we don't believe that uh, church members should be active in the church or they should not be active in their Christian life, showing their love uh, to the Christian community. But specifically, what we want to critique tonight is the idea that every New Testament believer fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king uh, in the New Testament in that sort of way. The officers are still distinct. Let me read to you from this Connection Power article. Uh, it says they want to do a comparative study of the Old Testament offices of priest, prophet, and king and show how the same ministry functions play out in the lives of ordinary New Testament believers. And then they would argue, of course, for the breaking down of the common distinctions between church officers and laity uh, today. Okay, so in making their case, they begin with the Old Testament office of priest, and they say uh, the office in the New Testament is redefined in wonderfully participatory language. And then they quote from 1 Peter 2.5, which says you're being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And so now the conclusion they draw from 1 Peter 2.5 is this. Temple ministry and the offering of sacrifices are here radically redefined and relegated, and here's the important point, to the turf of the common community member. He also goes on, if the priestly function of confession is within the domain of ordinary Christians, one must ask what level of pastoral care is beyond the spiritual qualifications of the common church member. So what they've basically done is said that just because we have this title given to us, now let's radicalize it and say that we do absolutely everything all the time for everyone. And what's the point then? How is it that you are to confess your sins to people you don't even know, people who have no oath of office, people who cannot be trusted with information? All right, but people who like this model and people who promote it are going to ask you guys, but doesn't the Bible say that as believers today we are all part of the priesthood? Okay, that's fine. But to go back to their argument, let's just say this. If their proof text, which they're arguing as Peter applies Exodus 19.5 here to the church, if that is an argument to substantiate the fact that now there's no distinction between the members and, say, the pastor, because we're all priests now, the same proof text would have applied in the Old Testament for the individual believer to have gone to the altar and sacrificed his offering. Because the quote there is from Exodus 19.5, and Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, not the Levite. In Exodus 19, the Lord is addressing the whole Israelite community and calling them a priesthood. But even during that time, there was the distinct office of priest. 
And so in the New Testament, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We'll explain that more, what that means. But it doesn't mean that now the offices or the duties of the offices uh, break down. It does not eliminate the distinction between the official office and the duties of that office and the broader uh, priesthood as the entire community. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. We're talking about these movements, especially this one that we've uh, looked at, ConnectionPower.com tonight, which tries to argue that the Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king are now applied. Those duties are applied to every New Testament believer. We already talked about priests. Now let's talk about prophet. Yeah, and I feel a bit silly even reading this because I'm giving countenance to something that is so shallow and so superficial, but here is their uh, presentation for the office of prophet now. The Old Testament prophet was a rare and select individual upon whom the Spirit of God would descend and impart special capabilities and or utterances. But then they go on to say this. Paul dismisses Old Testament pneumatology, that is this whole idea that only prophets were set apart to, to receive special revelation from God. So that Paul sets that uh, aside when he says to each one, that is to every Christian, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. First Corinthians twelve seven. So basically, what they're trying to argue is just because you've been given the the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a gift, now that that eradicates the idea that God communicates uh, specially or specifically to uh, a, a specific group of people. Right. That proves that now everybody's a prophet because everybody has the Holy Spirit. Well, right? shoot, every time I speak, I'm prophesying right now, right? Of course, there was the Holy Spirit gifts. in my heart. Well, those spirit gifts were given even in the Old Testament, but having the spirit didn't make you a prophet. You were given the spirit as a king. You were given the spirit in order to uh, do the work to build the temple. I mean, physically build and do the sowing and everything else. So that doesn't prove his argument at all. And in fact, from the context, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about the many different gifts that are needed in the church. Right, and ironically, in that passage, it's not just tongues or prophecy that is a gifting of the Holy Spirit. It's it's like you say, gifts of government and hospitality, generosity, charity, yeah. all these kinds of things. It's not The Spirit is not equated with one manifestation that is prophecy. I mean, this is so superficially... Uh, and weakly argued, it's embarrassing almost that this is this is printed and published and put online. But worse than that, uh, people believe this garbage. Well, then he goes on to the office of king, and this one is really rich because he takes a promise that God makes that these things are all going to pass away and that all things are going to be made new, where Jesus says, Behold, I have given you, and he has in quotes here, every Christian, Authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. And he says, see, now you, the commoners, are members of the office of king. Okay, now this is, these are my favorite. People will read the passages in the New Testament where Jesus is committing his authority to the apostles. Those specific apostles who are called as officers to go forward and do miraculous works in the name and in the power of Christ and to open and close the kingdom of heaven to uh, believers and then unbelievers. And they think that every time Jesus gives people that power, it applies to every Christian today. You see this all the time. Remember, watch out for this. When you read the New Testament and you see Jesus empowering the disciples and the apostles, that doesn't mean that he is giving you that power. It means that he is giving the apostles that power, and then by extension, the visible church keeps that power, and the officers of the church exercise that power today, not every individual believer. Right. I, well, keep in I mind, when you're talking about the office of king, Christ is the king. 
insofar as we participate in Christ, we are a part of the office of king. But again, this is a complete misunderstanding where you, the individual, somehow becomes the king. And so this is one of the big problems that we deal with is that we have made the individual supreme as opposed to God and his glory. And it becomes how do you feel and what makes you happy in the church rather than what has God intended for the church to do in the world until he comes to take her back to himself. And basically, if you follow this argument out, this idea that we're all kings and there's no distinction now between uh, you and the officers of the church, how are you ever going to uh, come to any settled resolution on any matter of debate in the church? If everybody's equal in authority and everybody's decisions are of equal weight, then how in the world are you ever going to decide on any policy matters within the church? Now, to be fair, to be charitable to the people that hold this view, they will say sometimes, well, we're not saying there's no distinction. The problem is, you know, they will say, for example, there is a kingly office more especially in the church. You know, there still are elders and pastors, even though everybody also does their duty. We're arguing, though, if you ascribe the same duties to all of the laity that you ascribe to the officers then basically you have a distinction, but there's no difference. And it's just chaos at the end of the day. You're trying to have it both ways, and it's either going to be one or the other. And what is represented here is different from the historic Christian church's understanding of the role of officers and of laity in churches. We also have to deal, actually, with one of the key passages that's used nowadays and what we referenced earlier, and that is from Ephesians 4.12. And this passage has been mistranslated, and unfortunately, that's what almost everybody now reads. Currently, the passage reads, starting at verse 11, And he, referring to Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, comma, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, here's the problem. That's not how it should be translated. Rather, it is God has given all of these offices, and this is the duty of the offices. For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of service, which they've been given to do, comma, and for the building up of the body of Christ. And see, it is the misunderstanding here that the entire ministry exists only for training the people to go out and do the real work of the ministry that has caused so much problems. Yeah, so if you give this authority to pastors, all you've basically given them, if you say, okay, well, we're not going to get rid of the office of pastor. What we're going to do is we're going to so minimize and marginalize you that you're just absolutely nothing in the church. All you have is this little teeny weeny tiny task of equipping so everybody else can go out and do the work of ministry in the church, not the pastor. Well, what you've got is the pastor has become the drill sergeant. He's there at the boot camp. He, all he does is get you in shape, and then you go out with your rifle, and you're the Christian out there on well, the front lines. Well, and he's lines. the cheerleader and the pump-up, the guy who gets everybody pumped up, the yeah, pep rally leader. And my job is to work myself out of a job. Yeah, that type of nonsense, which completely misses that the minister is the herald of the gospel. He is the spokesman for the king, and when he preaches, he is actually preaching God's word. God's voice is coming through the minister. And this is completely being ignored. In fact, this one uh, website makes it so brutally clear. Note that church growth is not attributed to the powerful preaching of the pastor. That is the arrogance that we've come down to. Wait, 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 wait. What? Read that again. Specifically. You've got to be kidding me. This is in one of his articles. He is referring to Ephesians 4.16. And then he says, note that church growth is not attributed to the powerful preaching of the pastor. In other words, the preached word, which is central to the church's existence, the declaration of justification by grace through faith because of the electing love of the Father and the work of Christ, 
is apparently not relevant for growth so in the church. So let me see if I understand this correctly. You just throw Romans 10 out the window where basically Paul says that faith comes by hearing and the preaching of the word of God. Let's throw out what Paul said, and now let's uh, put the individual believer uh, on the throne here, and he's the one that really opens up the kingdom of God through his encouraging words and his care ministries. Well, the problem with you guys is that you're not empowered and you're not mobilized. <laughs> but, and where uh, are those <laughs> words in Scripture? <laughs> when we come back, we'll make a couple other comments about these thoughts, and we will give you, though, uh, the right understanding from the Scripture, from the historic Christian church about uh, office and about the priesthood of all believers when we come back. Reformation Radio. Theology with an edge. We're talking about ConnectionPower.com and their power member process, a way to mobilize and see spirit empowerment in your church, get the lady doing the work of the ministry. We're saying that that's ridiculous. We just want to point out just how tacky this stuff is. And you see it in different forms. It's not only this one. We talked about it with the Purpose Driven Life. We talked about it with the Purpose Driven Church. You see all kinds of things. If you're involved in church leadership, you get them in the mail programs, uh, 10 steps to the next thing. It's just tacky. Everybody knows this. This would never fly in any kind of a corporate setting. But in the church, somehow people latch onto it, throw a couple of verses, and wow, it must be right and good and helpful. Well, I wish I could just dismiss this as just a bunch of hype, some overblown hype. But actually, I think it's more than that. This is absolutely, this is ridiculous. Who ever told you that you needed a special ministry name and a special umbrella to categorize your activities so that you could have a care ministry and go out and do whatever needs to be done in the church? Listen, you already have a mandate. You don't need to call it a ministry. It's called the law of God. You are redeemed for good works. That's what Paul says to Titus and Timothy, uh, Titus chapter 2. You have been redeemed so that you would be zealous for good works. So go out and encourage somebody. Take, take somebody some food in a home who's a shut-in. Go encourage a widow or something like that. That's not a ministry, though. Yeah, but, John, don't you see, I need the seven laws of member retention to guide me in my ministry. Now that's a bunch of nonsense. I, <laughs> I need to have a chart that shows me the flow of visitors and the person who is the data setup man, the assigning the email man, the care partner caller, the enter the call results man, who reassigns the calls, the director of care and intervention. See, this it just is putting teeth to nothing. Now, all you need to do to realize is that you are significant because you're clothed in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you don't need to find your significance or or pump up your self-esteem by applying a bunch of generous ministry titles to you and to your activities, what you do. It's just service. Go do it. It's good works. Christ calls you to it. He redeemed you for it. Just do it. The historic understanding of the Reformers was that Christ is the anointed one, and we are in him, and so we share the blessings. Why are you called a Christian? Heidelberg Catechism, question 32. Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and thus a partaker of his anointing, in order that I also may confess his name, this is where you serve as a prophet. You proclaim, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. This is where you are a priest. And with a free conscience may fight against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter and eternity reign with him over all creatures. Your office of king. You're a prophet because you profess the one true God. You are a priest because your body is a living sacrifice of service. And you are a king because you fight against sin. Yeah, the Reformers, when they argued for the priesthood of all believers, were not arguing that lay people should take on themselves the public uh, functions of ministry in the church. They were saying, no, you don't have to go confess your sins to some guy in order for God to hear them. 
uh, you could call upon the name of Christ and confess him directly. Don't you know, pervert this principle of the priesthood of all believers. Yeah, you just don't need to abstract it out of the thin air. Realize that the priesthood of all believers had more to do with being able to say this point. You, as an individual believer, don't need to go to the local parish priest to have your sins forgiven or to talk to God. You go directly to God through Jesus Christ, and that is a blood-bought privilege that comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's about what this amounts to. It bothers us. It should bother you when churches today get caught up in all this motivational speaking, all this tacky and, and silly and money-making, lust-for-power type you know, articles and misapplications of, of uh, the teachings of God and theology. We, uh, we would encourage you to stand fast in faith, which has been handed down to us, and we'll see you next week on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.